hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Brax Tanks. This is Northridge Fellowship's youth podcast for our uh, youth in middle school and high school. Um, today's discussion is going to be a little bit more geared towards um, high schoolers. Um, so if you're if you're tuning in and you want your middle schooler to be able to listen to this, I would recommend that you as a parent would listen through this first. If you're in high school, uh, I want to let you know, and anybody that's listening, today's topic is um, sex, uh, marriage, divorce, and singleness. Uh, those are going to be the topics that we're going to be covering today. Hopefully, we'll be done in the same amount of time. Um, we do have our high school lesson discussion um, that we had live, and that's that's about an hour, um, and that's on our podcast as well. But I wanted to give you a shortened form of that without um, some of the uh, interactions between me and students so that you can get the kind of condensed form of what we talked about because I think this is a really important discussion for us to have. Um, so that's why we're doing this episode as well. So um, our passage... Um, Regarding these things, marriage, divorce, sex, and singleness, is from Matthew 19, and starting in verse 3, the Pharisees came up to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, haven't you read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it wasn't so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Then uh, Jesus' disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about what is this one flesh uh, that Jesus is talking about. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we need to know a few things about this one flesh union. People say, well, that's that's marriage, but I want to go a little bit deeper in what that's talking about. Um, so we need to know that that one flesh union between a man and a woman, that's, that's what it is, uh, is God's work. Um, so when people ask the question, well, how does somebody get married? How is someone married in the eyes of God? Um, you can't say, well, we've had sex, therefore we're married in the eyes of God. Or uh, we've been living together and having sex, therefore we're married in the eyes of God. I don't think that that's true because Jesus says what God has joined together. So we see that this is not primarily a work of 
people. This is the work of God. So what I would say, um, based off of that, what I would imply, what I would infer would be that um, a, a man and a woman, there is some kind of ceremony involved um, where there are witnesses, where there are vows. Um, and in that moment, whether someone is Christian or not, God is doing a work uniting those two people. Part of why I say that as well is that if we make marriage equal to having sex, well, there are quadriplegics who are paralyzed and they can't have sex and yet are married. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata is an example of that. I'm, I'm fairly certain that um, she hasn't sec- had sex, but I could be wrong. She's been a, in, a, in a wheelchair for um, I think 60 years or something like that, 50 or 60 years, and she's married. So um, I, I don't think that sex equals marriage. I think God does a work in that moment of ceremony where there are witnesses and vows. That's when someone becomes one flesh. Now, of course, sex has something to do with it. And we'll circle back to that later. Um, and, but um, that one flesh union is something that God does. Now, what is that one flesh? What, what do we mean when we say one flesh? Well, I think we mean a couple things. One, of course, we mean marriage. But another thing that we mean, I think biblically, when we say one flesh, is symbolically one flesh is the child that comes out of the marriage. One plus one in, in um, marriage uh, um, language one plus one actually equals three because you get the man and the woman together and there's a child. And if you haven't had that talk with your parents, um, go and do that because I'm not going to cover that here. Um, so symbolically, the child is a representation of that one flesh. So the ideal here would be that your parents stay together because if your parents stay together, um, What's that? What that's doing for you spiritually, emotionally, psychologically is that you, as the child, the representation of the one flesh union of your parents, are together. Now, I don't mean that if your parents aren't divorced and they stay together, um, well, then you have everything together in your life. That's not what I mean. What I do mean is that um, you are a more integrated person. Okay. What I mean by that is, I think we'll start to see what I mean by that when we start looking at what happens when your parents split. So if your parents split and you are a representation of that one flesh union, what happens to you is that you as the child get torn apart. Okay. It's not as though, um, you know, some people make this analogy with divorce. It's like, um, getting gum out of carpet. Um, it's doable, but there will always be a little bit of gum in the carpet um, I think that might be okay to talk that way about divorce between a man and a woman, but it doesn't work when it comes to the child. Um, for the child, it's like tearing the one piece of carpet. It's like, how do you get some fibers out of the carpet and not another? It's you are that carpet. You are that one flesh union. And, um, and now you're starting to get torn apart. Now, um, a resource that I've found really helpful because my parents are divorced and I've tried to, you know, come to my own understanding of how their divorce has affected me. So some of this is coming out of my own um, experience, but most of it is coming from, uh, I think it's Elizabeth Marquards. I don't know how to say her, her name, but I'll put it in the, um, 
in our podcast notes here. <clears throat> but um, her book, Between Two Worlds, talks about a lot of this idea of the, the child is a one flesh union representation and then the effects of what happens to you if, um, if your parents get divorced. So assuming that there are people listening to this who their parents are divorced, I want to let you know um, some of the things that might happen to you as a result of your parents' divorce is that you get torn apart. Your sense of home uh, is, is kind of destroyed because um, especially if you're doing visitation, um, home is, is just wherever you are that weekend or that week or whoever has custody, um, home starts to be something that's destroyed. So you start to live as a nomad um, out of, uh, you know, there's some people, this was my experience of, I, I lived kind of out of a suitcase because it was going in between my parents' house and I wasn't good at cleaning um, and putting things away. So I just kind of kept things in the suitcase. Um, but then there's, you know, some of my possessions are at my dad's, some of my possessions are at my mom's. Um, so home is, is not this stable um, uh, idea in your mind anymore. And then um, that actually, I think for me, it's, it's really affected how I view possessions and, my, and the space around me. I tend not to be very clean with um, the space around me because I think, well, this isn't really my home anyway. Um, so your sense of home starts to, to get um, destroyed. There's an expectation of abandonment. If the two people in your life who are supposed to love you the most, um, one of them leaves the other, well, then you start to have an expectation that that's going to happen to you in other relationships. Um, if you get married someday, this is something that you're probably going to have to struggle through is... Um, does this person really love me enough to stay forever? And, um, and I think if, if you um, do get married, you need to assume that your spouse will stay with you rather than the opposite. Um, so there's an expectation of abandonment that's really difficult to, to get through. Um, there can be uh, emotional abuse during a divorce um, that the child will go through. Uh, one of the, an example of this is parentification is when the um, mom or the dad looks to the child for emotional support that the spouse should be um, providing but can't because of the divorce. This happened to me um, where one of my parents looked to me for emotional support and um, it parentified me. It put me on a peer level with my parents and it shouldn't, I shouldn't have been at that, that level. And with that, um, you can have a denied childhood in, in that area. You mature too quickly, um, which can play itself out in some really bad ways later when you hit adulthood. Then you might try in adulthood to reclaim the childhood that was stolen from you, um, which is, is not good. Uh, I, if that is your situation, what I would tell you is you absolutely need to uh, cancel the debt of the owed childhood. Um, you need to let go of it and become an adult and realize that the childhood that you should have had was stolen from you. It's not coming back. Um, and then this last one, this is really, really difficult to realize is um, you're loved by your parents, but not fully. And what I mean by that is um, because you are 
uh, a representation of the one flesh union. You actually are your mom and your dad. Um, There are aspects to you that, of course, are unique that aren't your mom or dad, but a lot of you is either mom or dad. Um, You'll see this eventually. You know, you might start to notice uh, mannerisms that you do that are a lot like your dad um, or mannerisms that you do that are a lot like your mom, the way that you talk, the, the likes and dislikes that you have are basically just them rehashed. And what can happen then, and I think inevitably does happen when your parents are divorced, is that um, you realize that mom loves me but has irreconcilable differences with dad. Therefore, that means mom has irreconcilable differences with the parts of me that are dad. Dad loves me, but has irreconcilable differences with the parts of me that are mom. Um, So essentially what happens in a divorce is that it's not just that your mom or your dad divorces the other. It's that they have divorced the parts of you that belong to the other parent. Um, So my dad, and I'm not saying this like to be mean to my parents. It's just... um, Essentially, my dad does not love the mom parts of me. My mom does not love the dad parts of me, right? That's just logically what happens is you go, well, if, if mom and dad left each other, then they, they left those parts of me behind as well, um, which is very difficult to do. So how do, you, how do you deal with all of this? I think the first step is to realize that your parents did owe you a debt of parenthood and they shouldn't have treated you this way. And what needs to happen is you need to cancel the debt. Um, you, that's what forgiveness is. is there's a debt that's owed um, you, and you say, I'm canceling that debt. I'm not, um, I'm not looking at my parents as if they owe me anything anymore. And that's very difficult to do. And you need to realize that um, you're probably going to be dealing with this for the rest of your life. Um, in some way or another, the damage that is done in divorce affects the children of divorce for the rest of their lives. Um, and I will say if it's, if uh, typically the research shows typically the earlier the divorce in your life, the worse off you will be in trying to figure these things out. The later in life that the divorce happens, it'll be easier on you. Um, so just wanted to let you know, you know, that's, this is what you might be experiencing. If you, uh, have experienced your parents' divorce and you need somebody to talk to, I would love to talk to you because, um, like I said, I've experienced this myself and uh, I'd love to walk walk with you through this experience. Um, so that's the one flesh uh, representation through the child. Um, we'll circle back around to uh, sex now. So we've already said that... Um, Marriage is not the same as having sex with somebody. Um, having sex with someone does not mean that you are married to them. There is, in a sense, this idea of the one fleshness. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6. So there is, is it's like the one flesh union, but it's not the same thing. There's not the commitment. There's not, I don't think, the work of God um, making these two people one flesh. Um so the ideal for marriage, obviously, is that um, the when it comes to sex, would be that this couple would be exclusively sexually intimate with each other. 
um, not letting anything else into that relationship. Um, and like, just like how we saw earlier that there's an ideal for children with their parents is that the parents would stay together. Now we're seeing that in marriage with sex, there's also the ideal of this couple being exclusively sexually intimate with one another. But just like with, um, uh, with children, that there's the less than ideal where the parents are divorced and therefore you're starting to get torn apart. Well, there's also a less than ideal with marriage and sex. Um, sex and and sin so um before we get into the uh sexual sin that can affect um marriage and and really your life um, i want to just give you a brief sketch of of what um uh what has been taught in churches probably since the 90s around sex okay it's called purity culture and that's popularly what it's being called today. Um, and basically the messaging of purity culture was this, um, and is this, it's still around. Um, we as Christians love sex, want to have sex, lots of sex, the best kinds of sex. We want our youth to have lots of sex. Okay. This is, don't, I don't want you to think that this is what I'm saying. I'm just, this is what these people have said. And it can be really uncomfortable with how much they say that they want to have great sex. Um, but they want to have great sex. You want, they want you to have great sex. In order to do that though, you need to do dating God's way. Um, and how you do dating God's way is you um, basically you take dating really really seriously. Um, you uh, you don't date until you are ready to marry. So typically um, you shouldn't be dating until you're 18. Um, you should only date looking towards marriage. So you can't just date for fun or anything like that. Uh, you need to date somebody thinking, I want to see if I should marry this person. Um, and then, of course, you should have very firm and established boundaries to keep you yourself sexually pure in that relationship because you need to uh, maintain your, your purity, your virginity. Um, this is where, like, purity rings come, come into play and, and people wear those and things like that. Um, or uh, promise necklaces, I think, is another one. Um, but you... You keep yourself a virgin and then you get married and ideally like your first kiss is is at your um, on your wedding day and and then you have sex as a virgin. And then if you do all of that, God will bless you with an awesome marriage, uh, mind blowing sex, great sex, um, obviously the best sex that you've ever had because you haven't had any yet. Um, and, and then God will bless you with uh, fertility, lots of children, if, if that's um, the family planning that you have in mind. So that's, that's purity culture. And that's what the church has taught in a lot of circles, like I said, 90s and 2000s. And there's a lot of historical reasons for why um, this kind of teaching came up. Um, but we could get into that in a different episode. But that's been the messaging. Now, I want to let you know, uh, I think that the messaging of purity culture um, is is a lie um, because listen to what it says. It, it says you keep yourself sexually pure. You, you do all of these things so that when you get married, God will bless you 
with uh, an awesome marriage to an awesome spouse with great sex. And it's just going to be free and it's natural and it's wonderful. And, and then lots of children if you want them. Um, let me tell you the experience of a lot of people who um, grew up under that messaging. They got married. And they found out that they were married to a sinner and, and, and marriage is not easy. Um, and they had sex and it was awkward because they've never done it before. And it didn't come naturally. It wasn't free. And, and not all of your sexual fantasies were fulfilled in your spouse. And people had miscarriages. Let me tell you this. The Bible never promises any of those things, a great marriage, great sex, or lots of children if you want them, if you obey God's commands for your sexual life. The Bible never promises that, Old Testament or New. It's not in there. And what happens as a result of this messaging is we tend to view our sexual lives with a lot of shame. So... Um, if, if you've struggled with pornography at all, and I, I, I'll just say this, more, more than likely, um, if you're listening to this as a, as a uh, man from the ages of, I don't know, 13 through you know, 30 or 13 and up, basically, um, you've probably struggled with pornography to some extent because of how uh, just wide accessibility there is to pornography today. Um, you, you have a lot of shame that you carry with that because of that struggle, because you start to think about yourself and think, man, I'm going to be punished with, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to get married because of my sexual sin. I haven't kept myself pure. Um, and, and people who, and you know, there are certainly, um, youth in our youth group who, who are not virgins um, and, and then you start to think, man, um, again, I, I won't find love because this is the way it works, you know, is that you're supposed to keep yourself pure and, and I haven't kept myself pure and, and I've cheapened myself because, you know, and so if I do get married, I won't be able to give my spouse this great gift of my virginity. Um, and, and again, like that somehow I'm, I'm less than, um, I'm not everything I could be because I've given this part of myself away. There's this analogy that's used in purity culture where the speaker will get up and start teaching about sex. And, and while he's teaching, a rose will be passed through the crowd and, they'll, and the whole crowd will smell it and touch it. And, um, and, it, and by the time that that rose is done being passed around, the, you know, it go, comes back to the teacher and the teacher looks at it and says, this is you when you, um, when you give yourself away to so many sexual partners, this, this rose is you. And of course it's all crumpled up and damaged and, and kind of destroyed and it's, it's not looking good. And then the teacher will say something like, now who would want this? I want to let you know that Jesus wants you. Um, whether you have lost your virginity, whether you struggle with pornography or any sexual sin, um, down to just have just lusting after somebody that walks down the street. Jesus wants you. Jesus is your purity. The gospel, uh, Jesus 
provides your purity in the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that he went to the cross. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might become the purity of God. Jesus covers us with his blood, and he is your purity. Guys, if you're struggling with pornography, I want you to know that your purity does not come from how many days you have gone without looking. How many weeks you've gone without looking. If you never look at pornography again and you die on your 90th birthday, your purity will not be, look at how long I've gone without looking at porn. It will be the blood of Jesus Christ. That's your purity. If you've lost your virginity, your purity is not tied to your virginity. It is tied to Jesus Christ. The gospel is for you, even if you've sinned sexually. There is no sin that goes beyond his grace. That's the first thing I want to let you know. The other thing I want to let you know is if you have experienced sexual abuse, maybe you've been molested or something else has happened in your life, rape, um, there is so much shame that you probably carry because of that. And I want to let you know that Jesus does not heap shame on top of your shame. He doesn't. Um, I want to let you know that Jesus sees not, not just our sin, not just our sin and in our own lives. Um, he sees the sin that has been sinned against us. And Jesus is the righteous judge. Um, He will judge your abuser someday. Justice belongs to the Lord, and he will give it to your abuser. Just in a couple chapters ago in Matthew 16, we see that Jesus says that um, if anyone, uh, if anyone causes, I think actually it's Matthew 18, if anyone causes one of these little ones to sin, who, these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for this person to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. Jesus sees the abuse that has been perpetrated against you and he will judge it. And I also want to let you know, ladies, there's this talk in the church around purity culture that you need to dress modestly and you need to make sure that you are um, ensuring that your brothers in Christ aren't stumbling because they look at you with lust. I want to let you know that you are not the guardians of sexual purity in the church. Men need to take responsibility for how they treat their sisters in Christ. Men need to take the responsibility for how they treat other people. So if abuse happens to you, ladies, I want to let you know that it's not somehow your fault. That you could have done things differently somehow and and then it wouldn't have happened i want to let you know this is not your fault jesus sees the sin that has been committed against you he will judge it and he knows i want to let you know he knows the pain that you have gone through jesus christ hung on a cross naked and humiliated and abused he will judge that sin that has been committed against you, and he knows what it feels like. He's been there. And the last thing I want to let you know around sex is that sex and marriage does not equal happiness. Um, in our day, we typically talk about 
sex and marriage. And the church hasn't done a great job of, of saying anything otherwise. I want to let you know. Um, we've, we've joined this as if sex and marriage is the height of earthly happiness. Um, I want to let you know it's not. Um, you don't need to have sex in order to be a fulfilled human being here on earth. Um, sex isn't going to be a thing in heaven. <laughs> it's not. Um, there will be deeper intimacy there. Um, of a kind that we know nothing about almost today. But I want to let you know, you don't have to have sex and you don't need to be married in order to be a fulfilled human being. What we see in this chapter is that Jesus says, not everyone who can be single, I mean, not, I mean, we could all, we could all be single, but he's saying, um, let me just read this. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. He's talking about singleness because the disciples just say, well, it's better not to be married. And he says, well, not everyone can receive that. Not everyone can receive this gift of singleness, but only to those to whom it's given. I want to let you know that in the pages of the New Testament and in the early church history, it wasn't marriage that was held up as this ideal. It was singleness. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, hey, I wish everyone was like me, single. Why? Because if you're single, you can devote yourself entirely to thinking, how can I please my Jesus? But if I'm married, my interests are divided. I think about how can I please the Lord, but also how can I please my spouse? He says, it's not a sin if you marry, but I just want to, I want to secure your undivided attention and loyalty to the Lord. So I want to let you know, the Bible says singleness is good. So if if you hear the message of purity culture and it says, hey, you know, you do all these right things and then you get married and then you go, well, but I'm same sex attracted. I, The Bible tells me I, I shouldn't get married. Now what do I do? Whether you're same sex attracted, whether you're single and hoping to be married, whether you're single and you never want to get married, whether you're in a dating relationship, whether or not you get married someday, whether you're widowed, whether you're divorced, whether whatever, here's what we need to do. We need to submit our sexuality to Jesus. We need to submit the way that we view ourselves sexually. We need to submit our sexual pleasures and expression to Jesus. Because sexual flourishing is not equal to sexual indulgence or sexual expression. Sexual flourishing is submission to Jesus. I want to let you know, Jesus was the most sexually flourishing human that ever lived, and he never had sex. We're called to a cross to follow Jesus he is our reward in submitting our lives sexually to him, submitting our lives in our pride and humility, submitting our lives in our anger and our peace, submitting our lives in our love and in our hate. We submit our lives to Jesus because he has come, it's John 10, to bring fullness of life. He's come to bring life to bring it to the full. And it only comes as we pick up our cross and follow him. 
Thank you guys. We'll see you next time. And tell them, go and tell them to come and see.